The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. Our next step in the journey is to go into other use cases that are also super important. Production of protein or green hydrogen, or to contribute technology to all these removal projects that are now all eventing the wheel. So we will, in my vision, supply technology to all those projects as well. So... I feel it's important and therefore rewarding if you can contribute from what you're good at. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 9. Regular listeners to the show, welcome back. I appreciate your patronage, your support, your referrals, your feedback, your reviews. All of it is incredibly appreciated, and I thank you for supporting the show these past three years. If this is your first time listening, you just found the show, someone referred it to you, you just were searching for the topic of vertical farming, or you have a growing interest in this amazing, amazing industry that I've been privileged to be a part of, you're in the right place. Every week, I interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world, and I'm showing no signs of slowing down, having great conversations week in and week out. I'm your host, Harry Duran, podcasting since 2014 with my first show, Podcast Junkies, and founder of Fullcast, our full-service done-for-you podcast agency. In case you missed last week's episode, we spoke with Ralph Weir of Zindu. We talked a little bit about his Scottish origins, his leadership and managing through challenging times, the importance of plasma technology in agriculture, which is something that was new for me to learn about, and it's been getting some good buzz from listeners as well. We also delve into what's been happening in the industry lately, the future of vertical farming, and an overall very engaging discussion with Ralph. Make sure you check that out if you have not already. This week, we speak to Rob Van Stratton. He's the CEO of Skytree. We dive deep into Rob's very vibrant life, where he takes us on a journey from his childhood in the 80s through his time in the army, his global sailing adventures, all leading up to his rise in the tech world. He shares a little bit about his love of art, and we talk about the path that led him to spearhead Skytree's mission towards ESG, which is Environmental Social Governance Compliance. And for those and for those keen on understanding the inner workings of the tech industry, Rob takes us through his career and sheds light on the highs and lows of not only leadership and business management, but the challenges of transforming intentions into actions, which resonates with me always as an entrepreneur. We talk about Skytree's revolutionary CO2 scrubber technology, which was originally designed for space, but now being adapted for applications in the world of vertical farming. 
Rob shares with us Skytree's total cost of ownership tool, which is a unique approach that helps clients understand the real cost associated with CO2. Very informative, very insightful conversation. Looking forward to sharing that with you. Remember, if you are enjoying this episode or past episodes, I'd love it if you leave a rating or review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'd love to read yours out next. Hoping to find some new podcast fans, listeners, and potential new guests as I get ready to head on over to the other side of the world. Excited to be taking part in Vertifarm's conference September 26th through the 28th in Dortmund, Germany. So it's going to be a long day of travel for me, but I'm excited to get reconnected with the team at Vertifarm and make some new friends as well. Listen out for the promo details about how you can score a free ticket. Remember, these episodes are always full of great takeaways, and I want you as a listener to focus all your energy on our conversation. So don't worry about taking notes. You can always visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com to read the full show notes for each episode, which includes all guest links as well. Okay, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Rob, here are a few words from the amazing partners that support this show. Mark your calendars for the CEA Summit East in Danville, Virginia from September 19th to the 20th, 2023. This two-day event, co-hosted by Indoor AgCon and the Virginia Tech IALR Controlled Environment Agriculture Innovation Center, brings businesses and academia together to help you grow your business. Immerse yourself in a full lineup of research showcases, panel discussions, and keynotes featuring top experts, grower operators, and other thought leaders. Explore the latest CEA innovations from tabletop exhibitors. Enjoy quality networking opportunities. Don't miss this unique opportunity to attend a conference at a research facility where you can get a first-hand look at cutting-edge research projects happening right now and explore ideas for collaboration with Virginia Tech and IALR researchers as well. Vertical Farming Podcast listeners can save 10% off the standard passes with code VFP. Visit ceasummit.com for more details and to register. This episode is brought to you by Horty Agri Next, November 20th to the 22nd. In this first edition of the conference, you can expect a vibrant show that will bring together a portfolio of high-level horticulture technology to the Emirates, with the goal of aiding the Emirates to take the next step in becoming more self-sufficient in their food production, aligning with their 2051 goals. The show is expecting eight to 10,000 visitors over the three days and will include investors, buyers, curious farmers, government officials, university professors, and association members. Booths are still available and exhibitors are welcome. Partners for the conference include the Abu Dhabi Agriculture and Food Safety Authority, Dutch Greenhouse Delta, and Wageningen University, which will provide a wealth of knowledge and insight. Sessions will include a mix of Emirati and Dutch speakers and will highlight how these different worlds will come together in partnership. Based in Abu Dhabi, the agricultural hub of the UAE, the government's involvement will ensure that companies interested in partnering with the Emirates receive their full support. Co-located with VIV MEA 2023, the premier show in livestock production and animal husbandry, this week will provide a comprehensive look at the entire ag industry supply chain, both vertically and horizontally. So, Rob Brand Stratton, CEO of Skytree, thank you so much for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. My pleasure to be here, Harry. So, where are you dialing in from? I always say dialing in, even though it's not a phone call. I don't know, it's force of habit. <laughs> I grew up in the 80s when people still used actual phones. So. Well, I remember those days, Harry. I'm comfortably at home here in a city called Hilversum, which is uh, 20 kilometers uh, away from Amsterdam, where our office is. So for the benefit of the listener, we do, we're planning on getting some of these now onto on the video, but a lot of people uh, consume this on audio. So they don't have the, the pleasure of, of the face-to-face -face interaction that we're having right now. And I can't help but notice you've got some very interesting artwork <laughs> on your oh, walls. Wow. And, yeah. Wait, see this. Wow. 
what this is yeah, made by a Polish female artist, and the blue fish that's me. Oh, wow, that's beautiful! <laughs> it is, yeah, I enjoyed it. Are you a connoisseur, a collector, a fan of art? I just like art, painted art, modern art, but also the old masters. I had the pleasure of being at Vermeer. Uh, the recent exhibition, world famous, as all the Vermeer paintings were brought together in the Rijksmuseum here. So it's just great to see how people like 100 years ago, with the limitations of what was available to them, were able to create such magnificent pictures that actually show how people lived at the time. And Vermeer is one of the greatest, I would say. I was in Amsterdam probably a long time ago, <laughs> but I did at Breaks Museum is in Amsterdam. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I did make it there. I think it was probably in late 90s now, so I'm dating myself. But I had the I was lucky enough to take an arts and ideas class when I first went to college and university. And you know, I, I didn't know. And I was immediately drawn into just the world of all the artists, a lot of Dutch, <laughs> very famous Dutch artists with a lot of history. And so it was very interesting to just learn a lot. And I, I really appreciate the ability to appreciate art more. And then when you see it on a book, and then you have the ability to go to the museum and see, you know, Starry Night and Rembrandt and in person, you know, Michelangelo's David, like in person, you know, you see, you have all these experiences. It just completely enhances your appreciation for it. Once you've done a bit of background and you, you know, like the background and the story of all these artists. Yeah. And the story of the paintings, there are often amazing stories behind these paintings, who bought them, where they went and what was painted over because they didn't like certain elements in the painting. Those That's are right. Painting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious about your experience and you've been had leadership positions in, in many companies as I was looking at your CV and I'm wondering as you were thinking I'm going to have you rewind the clock a little bit but as you're thinking about coming out of university you know were you thinking about if you can put yourself in that mindset <laughs> of those youthful days of your aspirations of what you were you know planning to do where you were looking to move and what you were thinking about a career at that point Oh, I wasn't thinking about a career at all at those days. <laughs> Most of us are not. <laughs> no, and my journey wasn't maybe a little bit atypical as I first served in the army. And then I was a sailor for a couple of years, wandering around the world. And then the last thing you do is think about a career. <laughs> so, but when I met this beautiful young lady, I decided to stop with the sailing and started to look for a job. And in those days, it was a little bit different. You couldn't go to, you know, to job sites and the like. You had to go to a bureau and work your way through to little carts and carts that were there. And then as a sort of maybe even a coincidence, I went into technology first as a software developer. I'm educated as a software developer and a system analyst. But then, you know, soon I discovered that writing code wasn't my thing. So I went into sales. And then, you know, from sales, being a team leader, then the team got bigger, a level higher. And soon I became a business unit manager, a business manager running companies. And it sort of happened to me. It wasn't like I had this career path. Yeah, that's the way life usually goes. Is there one story from your days sailing that is, is memorable that you can run? Oh, many, many stories. <laughs> I'm sure you have many. <laughs> Sharing. <laughs> but yeah, so 
I was at a, a tanker, a small tanker, not an oil tanker, but, you know, we transported dangerous fluids, chemicals and other stuff. And so that brought us to areas in the world where these products were made. Uh, and that's not the Western world. You yeah. get them from very poor countries and then you sell them to the Western countries where they're used in industrial processing. So that brought me to extreme poor areas in the world. And that really opened my eyes and you know, made me conscious of how this world works and how fortunate I am being born in the country where I live. Yeah, I think it happens to many of us, especially if, if we've got, you know, nice households that we grow up in or we grow up in a first world country and our, our, i think everyone's first experience with a third world country you know is really shocking and jarring and, and i think it sounds like that's what happened to you and i remember those experiences as well like the realization that we're on a planet that we're all using the same resources and it's a limited supply of resources and i think when we're in our own bubbles you know we lose sight we only focus on what we need for ourselves to get through the day and I think it's really, it's happening more and more now. I feel hopeful, you know, we've gone through cycles and we'll talk about that as well. But I think that awareness and do you see that's what was happening for you? Sort of like an awakening to, you know, this idea that we're part of a bigger planet and a bigger ecosystem. Yeah, it's easy to say that now when I look back. So, but those were defining experiences. And then it built up when I was running my own first companies you know, you start to wander around bookkeeping. So we express value in euros or dollars, right? And then I read about the Treaty of Rome or the Declaration of Rome, where it was explained that, well, you use things that you don't account for, but that have a price and somebody will pay the price in the future. And that made an impression on me long before the years of, you know, environmental understanding or when yeah. it became like more almost fashionable so but i was always convinced that there's something wrong in the way we value things we produce or things we make because we don't count in all the costs that's important so as you were making your way through your career which was the first position where you held the role of ceo that was quite a while back. That was I've been CEO a couple of times. Smaller IT focused companies in the yeah. time that we were building uh, the internet. Okay. We were delivering the building blocks for the internet at internet service providers, as they were called at the time. So that was our own first business. We started with five. I sold it off five years later when we were with 100. And I did that once more, internet security. And later, I was CEO within a 25,000-people company, and then I was CEO of like a 1,000-people business unit, running my own P&L, but not being like, you know, the overall CEO. I had yeah. CEO business quite a <laughs> Then I was just running businesses and services, but not like the overall CEO positions so and not accountable for the finance or the investor relations until recently at Skytree. And I came back in the hot seat, as we said. <laughs> Those early days of the internet are always fascinating to me because I, I remember in the, the dot-com days, everything seemed like this world of possibility. I remember the first time I discovered the internet that there's something beyond AOL and you're like peeking behind the curtain. It was like, whoa, what's this? <laughs> well, <laughs> you couldn't imagine that you would read a newspaper on your computer, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And 
And then the iPhone came. And I've been reading science fiction books in my younger years where people had devices that they can talk to each other and also see each other. You know, <laughs> it was crazy, man. Look at where we are now. I think almost everything that's in Star Trek has now come to pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you remember your very first computer? Yeah, I think that was a Commodore 60. Commodore, Commodore, Commodore 60. Yeah. <laughs> For a few seconds, I think it was a Commodore. I'm pretty sure now it was a Commodore 64. Yeah, so, so I remember those early days, like the Atari 2600 days, the Texas Instruments, and then later on, I think that was the first one, or maybe, I, and then I eventually moved into Gateway. But it was just a fascinating time. You know, people were just watching, like, the processor speeds going from like 86 to 286. That was the big deal. Like, <laughs> yeah, time. I think it was called Moore's Law. I remember Law, my yeah. theme that wasn't at a Commodore 64, that wasn't on IBM mainframe. I think it was a 3080, if I remember well. I was working at a bank. In, in okay, the was that punch cards or the big floppy disks? Yeah, no, no, we were switching from the punch cards at the time and, and we were playing Moon Landing. Oh, wow. <laughs> didn't have a screen to see you actually land on the moon. You had like this print output, <laughs> you know, with the feedback of the data you entered. But uh, yeah, long time ago. Super early days. So as you were moving through your leadership roles, when did you start becoming aware of environmental issues? Because I know before Skytree, you know, you did some work with EV Box, I think it was. And also just kind of this understanding of the impact that industry and people were having on the environment. Yeah, so environment, you know, was a bit bigger for me as I've seen or I worked at E, S, and G, starting at Good Governance, the Dutch company that was creating enterprise software for large companies to help them, you know, first of all, to have uh, solid accounts under Sarbanes-Oxley after the Enron uh, debacle and then the SOX, as we call it, the SOX controls needed to be automated. And then we added risks. So risk management became part of uh, those type of software platforms. And then compliance came. And then I remember we were taken over by NASDAQ at the time. I spent a lot of time in uh, with U.S. customers as well. And then the team became, we sort of had as top leadership and I you know, shared with many audiences around the world. Do you have to comply? Or should you wish to comply? And then compliance became broader as elements were pulled in like modern slavery or sexual harassment on the workplace and things of that nature. So and then compliance became bigger as companies increasingly needed to behave in a responsible way, not only dictated by law, but dictated by their customers because reputational risk became yeah. the least risk. So I moved into those type of topics. We also had an, at a, another company I worked, we had a big education arm. We educated millions of people in large companies how to behave when you want to comply to laws, whether it's anti-bribery or you know child labor or any of these things, conflict minerals, or just to behave in the way that you should because you want to and your customers want you to. So that was my first experience. Then I went, and that included G and S. <laughs> and then I went into environmental by joining a large manufacturer of EV charging equipment and software 
to support electrification of transport. And all those roles were global roles. So I'm comfortable at the global stage. And all those roles had one thing in common next to the ESG focus, and that is extreme fast growth. That makes sense. I'm curious, when you start to have conversations with companies that are old companies that have historically, you know, not had concern for the environment that, you know, you've seen a lot of the stories here in the United States, and I'm sure it's, it's global. And I think it just becomes almost like an awareness and this idea of like, when you know better, do better. And so were you encountering in those early conversations, a lot of resistance to people in terms of knowing that they had to change or through your education, were you opening people up to say, hey, there's a, a better way of doing things? And then when they see that way, they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. Maybe we should move in this direction. I think the first step is exactly as you said, you know, sort of nothing. Yes. A few people in the audience, and then more people and then people, you know, admitting or yeah, admitting that they should do something. But then it's not easy to change, specifically if you're not in a big company. And as we always said in risk management, I think that goes for all these ESG-related topics. It starts with the tone at the top. And then the tone needs to convert in being real about it. And we, yeah. we all know greenwashing is sort of an intermediate stage between mm -hmm. awareness and really doing things. Oh, let's say we do this. We can defend that with a little bit of fantasy. And you can criticize it. But it's also a step, a step yeah. in the right direction, right? Yeah. And then Public outcry on greenwashing will repair that soon because that's the worst thing that can happen to your reputation. Yeah. Uh, so now I think you know increasingly people want to comply with good behavior as well as rules and regulations. And there's something else going on and there's no choice. But it's difficult because of our climate issue and there's yeah. no choice anymore but the difficulty is always that it's easy to talk about what we should do and it's difficult to change your own behavior yeah but increasingly we see recognition that actually the world will survive the planet will survive but it's people that will be in trauma yeah very good point very well said so take us back to the moment when you started coming up with the idea for, for Skytree. Who else was involved? And, and share with us a little bit about that journey. Yeah. So well, I have to apologize because Skytree is not my idea. <laughs> I did, I'm not the founder of the company, Hari. Yeah. So, but I'll tell you quickly how Skytree came about and then how I got connected to it. Sure. So Skytree originally is a spin-off of the European Space Agency where there was the International Space Station. Um, and one of the problems to keep the astronauts alive was to take out the CO2. Because you know what happens with people if there's too much CO2 build up yeah. in an area and you breathe, so you produce CO2. So, and this piece of technology was called the CO2 scrubber. And the engineer that worked on that, he started Skytree. Back in the days, with through an incubator program of the European Space Agency, they got a little bit of money. They were young. They didn't need a lot of money. So they <laughs> strapped away. They tried, no, I should say, they brought the technology from space to terrestrial conditions. Now, imagine in space, you have vacuum, so you can move around gases. You don't have weight. That makes it easy to build a big machine. You have space. Unlimited space in space. 
and only <laughs> us from the European Space Agency. That's true, yeah. Now you bring it to terrestrial conditions, you have to solve all four. That took, I think, four or five years. And then the first deck unit, direct air capture unit was built. It was the size of a book and it uh, did a few grams of CO2 per day. And then they started to look, okay, so what can we do with it? And then they come up, well, maybe we can sell it to people that own an aquarium so that they can bubble the CO2 in the water. And obviously you can't build a business on that. So they went looking for other use cases. And then after investigating this and that, they put their eyes on electric vehicles. And then the thought was, okay, let's build a little bit bigger system that fits in the car. And if you take out the CO2 from a carbon, car cabin, similar to a space cabin, then you don't need to get new air from outside. Yeah. Because, you know, when you drive in a car, you feel drizzly. No. How do you say Drowsy. You, drowsy. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> we say, oh, I need oxygen. But actually, you need less CO2. Yeah. Good point. That's what's causing the drowsiness. So you have to take in air from outside, right? But then when you take air from outside, you have to cool it or heat it, which costs a lot of energy, up to 30% of the battery of an electric vehicle. So Mm. hot or cold conditions, you could extend your range by 17%. And Skytree created these little devices that were tested in many cars. And uh, many car makers wanted to be involved and they gave funds to Skytree as a sort of R&D extension to continue to develop this technology. Until the end of 2021, when I was connected with Max Beaumont, the founder, the engineer, started the company, and he asked me for advice as I was working in the EV charging industry. So I told him, you're in a dead-end street. (laughs) No car maker will ever buy a filter max. Because, you know, they will not move for the next couple of years because they're afraid for accidents that will happen with the CO2. Somebody dies. Maybe regulations first need to change. And then if they want to buy these small filters, they won't buy it from you. Yeah. Because super big elephant won't buy these critical devices from the mouse. The Skytree were with eight people at the time. And he said, yeah, I kind of know, know this, but I needed somebody to shout it in my ear. <laughs> he also had, you know, another device that he's built years before. And he said, well, you know, instead of taking it out of the car and blowing it in the air, we can also take it out of the air and blow it in somewhere else. For instance, mm. in a container farm, because in a container farm, you have a closed environment and you need to supplement CO2 to make sure the plants grow daylight in the closed environment. And he said, we could develop that machine, right? And then sell it to people that have a container farm. I said, yeah, for sure. But then you can't build a business on that because there's only so many containers. You need a lot of funds to build this machine in volume. So, but what if you buy machines that do five, 10 kilos a day, or maybe 200 kilos a day, you make them stackable. Then you have a global market mm. that you do. And Max said, yeah, that's a great idea and, and we should. But then, yeah, this is the very short version. But then the conclusion was that I should be the CEO as he didn't have a clue how to build a company 
that could do that. So we're still dear friends, but I came in as CEO of Skytree unofficial for a couple of months. And then 1st of April last year, 2022, I was formally appointed as CEO, became a tiny shareholder as well. Yeah. And we started to grow until the Skytree that we're here with today. Rob, what was it about your conversation with Max, you said? Max yeah. Beaumont. As he's describing it, and you can see and, and probably feel his enthusiasm for the potential for what this could become, I imagine you give a lot of thought when taking over a new a role, and especially one that's so prominent and visible like CEO. So what did you see in terms of the potential for the technology that was the turning point for you to make that decision? Yeah, what I liked about Skytree, the value I saw was that they actually had five working prototypes. And, you know, there's a lot of plans, there's a lot of publications, but there's not a lot of companies who are sort of advanced with their technology. That's only a handful in the world. And Skytree was already at that point. It never had any strategy to industrialize it, right? And to to build an organization that can bring that successfully to the market and then service it and build channels and what have you. So I thought, well, that's the easy part. (laughs) That's what I do. (laughs) But, you know, the technology was there. It was supported by, I think it was 15 patents at the time. There was this small group of great scientists, PhDs, chemists, mostly women, by the way. And I just saw the opportunity and maybe that blindsided me a little bit (laughs) for the risk. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) You know, then... Yeah, I mean, you dive into it because you think, you know, it's a gut feel. We can make this work. And so fast forward to present day, you recently raised your, was it the seed or A, at your $6 million? Seed of $6 million, still pre-revenue. We will be announcing a Series A in a couple of weeks from now. And that's the only letter that we want to see in fundraising. So we should be cash positive after the next round. And yeah, I mean, that was great as our lead and co-lead investor come from the Agritech environment. So our lead investor is a Dutch firm called Horticope. They are collectively owned by 400 Dutch greenhouses. So that's the next market we will enter into after vertical farming. And then the co-lead was the Yield Lab, also Agritech early stage investor, and, you know, they clearly recognized the value that we could bring to the sector. And they've done an excellent network, including hundreds of potential clients. So it was a great round. And I think, you know, the next round, we will be looking more at bigger VCs, potentially also in the U.S. Okay. Congratulations on that, because I know in this environment, it's not an easy task to do. <laughs> a lot of hard work, I can tell you. <laughs> So for, you know, we've been talking a lot about the origin company of the company and, you know, for many folks, this may be their first engagement with Skytree. I, I saw that you had a table at Indoor AgTech NYC. I didn't get a chance to connect with the team, but I, I saw that and I was like, oh, I'm looking forward to my conversation with Rob coming up soon. So is yeah. that going to be part of the outreach, a bit of the outreach strategy to just make more of an appearance at some of these indoor farming shows? Yeah, that's spot on, Harry. Until a few weeks back, we operated in what we call stealth mode. So we had this like this not so super clear website and, you know, <laughs> we didn't have any materials to share. And so we've been preparing that behind the scenes in a couple of weeks back. We launched our new website and we started to attend a 
conferences, speaking at conferences, exhibitions, being out there, connecting to potential clients. I was interviewed by TechCrunch, which was nice. Nice article, by the way, with the editor, Tim. And then we sent out a press release on our successful closing of the funding round. And that all happened in one week. And then in that same week, we were at the Green Tech. And the Green Tech is often referred to as the Controlled Environment Agriculture Innovation Conference and Exhibition. Over 500 exhibitors there. Very international, right here in Amsterdam. And we won the Concept and Innovation Award. So that was really the icing on the cake. (laughs) Since then, it's been busy. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. That's great. Yeah, I, I'm definitely noticing more and more visibility for the company, especially in the news. I know iGro uh, featured you as well. So wow. for the listeners that are new to this technology to understand the benefits, who is an ideal client for Skytree? And in terms of, and maybe you can explain some of the, the different ways farms or anyone who could be a potential client could think about how to apply this in, in their environment. Yeah, so our beachhead market, as we call it, is uh, vertical farming, which will be followed by uh, greenhouses. The difference is vertical farming is more closed than a greenhouse, and in vertical farming, we have artificial daylight. But in most greenhouses and almost all vertical farms, CO2 is supplemented to the growth area to stimulate plant growth, often a need to have, sometimes a nice to have. And currently, all that supply of CO2 is coming from CO2 that's captured in an exhaust of a large industrial facility or refinery, fertilizer plant. So it feels like that's a good thing, right? So the CO2 is not emitted, the CO2 is captured and then used in a vertical farm. But if you think of it, so the CO2 is not emitted to the atmosphere. Okay, that's a good start. Then it's captured. The capturing costs energy. There are machines that capture that CO2 that have been made, manufactured, which is a carbon footprint. Then the CO2 is a bit toxic, so it has to be cleaned and purified. Then it has to be liquefied. Then it has to be loaded on a truck, and the truck will bring it to the vertical farm. And what I found in my conversations with vertical farms who want to be very sustainable and are good people is that they use the worst emissions that there are, you know, directly from an oil company and then added CO2 molecules on the way until it goes into the plants and through the plants and people, it comes in the atmosphere. So these are postponed emissions. And when you make people aware in vertical farming, they say, often say, you're right, or I never thought about it, or but what's the alternative? And what we do is we provide a machine that you can put on site next to your farm that takes the CO2 out of the ambient air right there at the location as an alternative supply. That CO2 will come back in the atmosphere, of course, but now it's not emissions anymore. Now it's a circular CO2 supply. How much of this is an education process for vertical farms or, or do you feel like they, most owners and operators understand the concepts and, and then are seeing this as a great opportunity to do their part for the environment as well? There are two topics that are immediately coming up in any conversation. One is pleasant. people are pleasantly surprised. They say, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I should switch, right? And then quickly it comes to, and what are the costs? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. so, and to help people understanding their current costs, we usually ask a few questions like, what are you paying currently for your CO2? Well, I pay 50 cents, $1, up to $8 in remote areas. And then they ask us, and what do we pay for a kilo CO2 with you? And then we say, well, first, is that all you pay? If you look at your invoice, you know, oh, yeah, no, you're right. No, we need to rent a tank or we need to rent. Oh, we pay for the transport as well. Okay, so what's your real price? Okay, so the real price is there. And then how we answer our price per kilogram CO2, we say, you know, we don't sell CO2. We sell you a machine and you generate your own CO2 and you take it from the air. So it depends on, you know, your years of machine depreciation in your P&L, what your price per kg is. But you should think differently. But hey, if you want to calculate it back to a price per kilogram, here's a nice little tool, fill in your data, and then it calculates your price per kilogram CO2 based on the values you put in, what you currently pay, your length of depreciation, and all those good things. That is your data. We just sell you the machine. Yeah, what I've seen with services like this is providing people with the tools to educate themselves, calculators to figure out the real cost for these, because there's a lot of numbers tossed around in this industry about benefits and, you know, coming back to the greenwashing as well. So, you know, I think a lot more companies are being careful about what they promise in terms of, and as opposed to, you know, what's being delivered. A hundred percent. And that's really in the culture of Skytree. We're very down to earth people here. A lot of very smart and young people. They are truly purpose-driven, so they wouldn't feel comfortable if we would take the marketing route. But we're not, yeah, we're business people as well. So we need to sell our equipment. So we provide like these little instruments, like we call it the TCO tool, total cost of ownership that we just spoke about. And the other tool that we're soon introducing is the carbon footprint tool. So you can fill in your current supply chain you get our data, our LCA, life cycle analysis data, and ours is scientific, referenced and backed. It's made by scientists, not by salespeople. <laughs> so people, <laughs> um, the carbon gain, if they would switch from their current fossil fuel-based CO2 supply to taking CO2 from the ambient air, what would it do for their carbon footprint? So we help them with that. Obviously, some for some folks, it's a lot of education process. So are you getting good conversations and the feedback from your team in these conferences as people come to the booth and they learn more about what Skytree does? It's very positive. It's like a warm bath. Every conversation we have, people understand. You just need to make them aware, as we just spoke about. And increasingly, people are aware. So they approach us and because they've heard about us, have seen it. And it's, yeah, it's almost, you know... If you pay less per kilogram CO2, if you improve your carbon footprint and you don't have to order these cylinders anymore and offload them and connect them so it's more convenient, there's no reason to not switch to a product. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Talk a little bit about the roadmap. You know, I'm sure some of this stuff you know, you'll have to release when it's ready for public consumption. But what can you talk about in terms of what you have planned for, you know, such, everything moves so fast in this industry. So I'll just have you go out maybe six months, you know, to a year. What are you thinking? Yeah, a year is a long time, but six <laughs> months, we have visibility on. Yeah, six months. Yeah, in a couple of months, we will open shop, as we say, we will start selling. 
as we're ready for it and process purchase orders for a 10 kilogram a day unit. You can stack them if you need 20 or 30. Then we will start delivering from production, from volume production at the end of this year. And there's healthy appetite from both vertical farms as well as the turnkey providers to vertical farms. And some of the leading companies there will integrate SkyTree units in their farm concepts instead of designing it to take these metal cylinders that we were talking about. That makes a lot of sense. So I asked this question and I always get a different answer depending on where the company is in the moment. But what is a tough question you have had to ask yourself recently? Well, <laughs> what the hell I was doing here when we met another roadblock? <laughs> you know, when we look back, we always laugh about it and we became more confident. But we had like these six or seven roadblocks. We call it, you know, the filter lifetime panic or the ammonia crisis. <laughs> you know, we all gave it names. And then, you know, we do simulations, build prototypes and pilot units. And then we come across a new roadblock that we didn't see coming. And sometimes, yeah, you get a little bit desperate. And my wife knows. She knows when there's something oh, going. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so then I have to confess. <laughs> you can't hide it. Yeah. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, you can yeah, announce that this is another hurdle we took. So for the Model 10 that we're introducing, all roadblocks have been jumped over. So we're moving to production and then there's a bigger model, and then the journey will start again. <laughs> yeah, you have to come up with more creative names for those roadblocks when they happen. <laughs> Rob, when you think about your journey and everything that you've, all the paths you've taken to get you where you are today and in this position with this initiative, you know, doing this work, you know, hindsight is, is twenty twenty, obviously, but why do you think you're here and why do you, what motivates you like to be here now doing this work? So first and foremost, it's the value that I can bring with all my experience to a company that I consider as an important company. Our next step in the journey is to go into you know, other use cases that are also super important, like production of protein or green hydrogen, or to contribute technology to all these removal projects that are now all eventing the wheel. So we will in my vision, supply technology to all those projects as well. So I feel that it's important and therefore rewarding if you can contribute from what you're good at. So I'm not a CEO who wants to do everything that I also can do. I want to do the things that I'm good at. And those are based on you know experience and ability to inspire people, help people. So we're a very kind environment to work in. We've got 50 full-time employees with a one-on-one gender balance, a lot of nationalities here. Yeah. People are not working until 11 at night. Yeah. You know, they want to burn not, people out. We are not burning people out. And I'm just proud to contribute and you know, get the reward of, through the results, but also you know, to create a, an excellent work environment yeah. for the people that work here. So... So we don't advertise the great things we do in our company, like our gender balance, da, 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 da. you know, because I think that's not what we should do, not use it in marketing, but in a more sincere way. Yeah. And my next step in my journey after I 
hand over the home to somebody else is to help other companies to also be good companies. Because I want to be responsible for building the company, how companies should be. We're back to the beginning of our conversation. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that insight. I always like to leave a, a little bit of room at the end of these conversations because of the people in the audience that are listening. It's a lot of your peers, your colleagues in the space, your other founders and CEOs. What message, knowing that this is a, a audience of indoor farming enthusiasts and, and champions, you know, any thoughts come to mind for a message you have for the vertical farming industry? Yeah, I think I have one. There's similarity in the vertical farming industry and, you know, the segment that I operate in direct air capture companies. And the similarity is like there's a lot of initiatives that want to operate and want to develop technology. And although, you know, that's a logic thing to do in an immature industry, when an industry matures, then you will see a split into people that are great operators and people that are great in tech development. And not every vertical farm can develop the best tech in the world. Correct. Right. So there has to be more sharing of technology. And there's a lot of similarity in what we do and in vertical farming. And, but that's hang in there. That's just, you know, the next level of maturity. But unless you have your tech really under control, you know, focus on being a great operator understanding your customers and all those good things, making sure you have excellent products at an acceptable price. And when you're a tech developer, don't do operations. Leave the operations to operators and work with them, you know, to distribute your tech as widely as possible to drive down costs. So without wanting to give somebody an advice what to do, it's just a normal pattern what's happening in the vertical farming industry mm-hmm. on its next level of maturity. And that cycle is just starting exactly in the same way in the industry that I'm currently in. And it happened in all industries or many industries. I think that's an incredibly helpful perspective and a a great way to put a a sort of a a ribbon on this part of our conversation, because I feel there's going to be other opportunities that are coming up to talk and, and see what's happening. But I think, especially for new people coming in, I think they see the closings of some of these big name farms or the restructuring and they get a little nervous about the industry. And I think it's helpful to have the perspective of someone who's been in various industries, held leadership roles in various industries, has seen these cycles, boom and bust cycles. And so I think giving people, you know, reminding them to take in a deep breath, (laughs) relax. It's it's yeah. going to be, you know, we're headed on the right path. There's going to be bumps along the way. But I think, you know, to have faith that we're all moving towards it in the same direction. Couldn't agree more. So the site is skytree.eu. And we'll make sure all the links that your team provided, we'll, we'll put them in the show notes for the listeners. Well, anywhere else uh, you want to send the listener to connect with you and the team? No, the website is a good start. Okay. Uh, Okay, so we'll make sure we share that because there's a lot of good details there about the technology. It's a beautiful site, a lot of good visuals about how the technology works. So it's very impressive, and I think people will learn a lot. I will pass on the compliment to Estee Shaikin, who's our chief marketing officer. She's awesome, by the way. And thinking of her, she will hate me if I don't share with you that we participate in Cultivate. (laughs) Okay. In two weeks' time, we're there. Our U.S. team is there. So. I'm glad I said that. 
<laughs> She'll appreciate that. Rob, thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed getting to hear your story. It's very inspirational. And I love to see all the different ways that people are participating in this industry. So I appreciate you and your time. Likewise, Harry. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks again for listening. As always, eternally grateful to my guests for spending that precious hour of time with me and sharing their story. As always, full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There you'll find summaries, key takeaways, and resources mentioned, and also a back catalog of all our past episodes. Special thanks to our title sponsor, AgTech Marketing Team. If you or your team have been struggling to come up with a comprehensive social media marketing plan and don't know where to begin, reach out to them today. With expertise in strategy, paid media, community management, content generation, influencer, and email marketing, their team can have you up and running in a fraction of the time it would take you to hire a full team and at a fraction of the cost. Learn more at agtechmarketingteam.com. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. To learn about the five key pillars of a successful podcast that every business owner needs to know prior to launching, visit fullcast.co and watch the free video. As a reminder, if you've enjoyed this episode or past episodes, do me a favor, leave me a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Nothing makes me happier than to read those out on future episodes. And don't forget to tune in next week for a conversation with yet another fascinating leader from the world of vertical farming. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.